It's a great day for you to be here. Uh, we are starting a new seven-week series today. Uh, before Easter, um, through the first whole quarter of the year, actually, we were doing a series called Seeking Revival. And uh, we were praying for God to revive our hearts with a fresh passion and energy for a new intimacy with Him, a deeper experience of His love. We're praying for greater joy in worship and for greater unity as a congregation. In all these ways, we're asking God to bring revival among us. And we have seen little sparks of that, but we're going to continue praying that he'll do that work and that we will see a greater breakthrough as a congregation, that we will be revived and experience uh, Jesus' presence here more deeply and more fully. But sometimes we have felt a little bit like that was an anticlimactic ending. I don't know if any of you felt that way. We're seeking revival, and yet nothing super big happened, right? We felt a little bit like, okay, well, we'll just have to keep going because God is never late, so it must not be his timing just yet. The revival will come. We don't know exactly when, but we trust and we have faith that it will. And yet there's a part that we have to play in this as well. And so as a pastoral team, we were thinking through, where do we go from here? We've ended the series on Seeking Revival. What should we talk about next? And so we thought one possible answer, one factor in why we haven't yet seen revival could be that we're not really hungry enough for it yet. I don't think we're actually desperate for that revival to come. And why would God bless us with that revival if we're not even fully convinced we want it? And so we thought we could focus on a topic that might help whet our appetite for more of God. And so we're calling this new series, Taste and See. That uh, description you might have read in our newsletter this week about the new series says this, are you hungry for more of God? Are you searching for something to fulfill your deepest longings? Scripture often uses food as a metaphor for the nourishment, provision, and joy that is found in Christ. And so let's explore the bountiful goodness of God through the biblical feasts, miracles, visions, and teachings centered on food. You will be amazed as we go through this series how many times the Bible talks about food in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Garden of Eden, in the manna that came down to feed the Israelites in the wilderness, uh, in the whole system of worship in the temple, there was uh, drink offerings and grain offerings, and there were sacrifices that people made and ate together. There was the Passover, of course, where they sacrificed a lamb and, uh, and ate that as they anticipated God freeing them from their slavery in Egypt. And then in the New Testament, we have Jesus doing all kinds of things with food, turning water into wine, feeding 5,000 people out of just a few little loaves of bread and two fish, calling himself the bread of life. And then, of course, the Last Supper, which he instituted as something for us to do as a remembrance of him. So in all these ways and many more, you'll see that food in the Bible it has great significance. And it's never just about food and eating. It's about God. It's these teachable moments where food is used as an opportunity to learn something more about our dependence on God and our relationship with Him. 
And so we've called the series Taste and See, which comes straight out of Psalm 34, where it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. So this series, this is like an an appetizer. It's to give us a taste of what God has in store for us and to help us understand what it is that we're missing when we try to satisfy our spiritual hunger with something other than God. So today we're considering what is one of the most important food images in Scripture, and it's the idea of the feast. The feast or the banquet provided by God for his people. Over and over we see God promising that we're going to enjoy a great feast with him in his kingdom after the final judgment. And we're going to look at several examples of those promises today. The first one, the, what I would call the, the foundational example of this, is in Isaiah 25. So if you want to you have a Bible with you, you can turn there, Isaiah 25. There's a Bible in the pew, I'm sure you have it on your phone, and we're going to put it up on screen now as well for you. Isaiah 25, starting at verse 6. This is often called the, a prophecy of the messianic banquet, the Messiah being Jesus and the banquet being the one that he is providing. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So this scripture was really important to the Israelites as they looked forward to the coming kingdom of God and to this feast that God would prepare. It was understood to be something that would take place at the end of time uh, when the Messiah would come and set all things right. So the wicked would be judged, the righteous would be comforted, their tears wiped away, death is defeated forever, and then we celebrate with this great mountain of food. And so in Israel, they had many different feasts and festivals through the year. And and those were understood to be foreshadowing this great feast in the kingdom of God. The people of God were told to have these feasts and to celebrate in advance almost as a show of confidence and trust that God was going to fulfill this promise. So people might ask them, well, why are you celebrating when this horrible thing is happening and that's wrong with the world and, and, you know, all of these terrible things and you're celebrating? What are you doing? And they could answer, well, we're pointing to the hope that we have for the future. The world isn't right yet, but it will be and we're going to celebrate because we have absolute trust and faith that God's going to fulfill what he has said. As Christians, we now sometimes refer to this feast as the wedding supper of the Lamb. Where do we get that from? It's from Revelation chapter 19. This one's not on screen, but I'll read it for you. Revelation 19, 6 to 9 says this. 
Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so because the church in scripture is referred to as the bride of Christ, then that makes Christ the groom, and the wedding supper is Jesus and his church being reunited together forever in this wedding supper, this great feast. And we foreshadow and anticipate that every month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Um, as Jesus taught us to do, we proclaim his death and his resurrection until that day when we will be with him again in the kingdom of God and we will be together celebrating this great feast that he has promised. And so with all of this in the background, it's understandable that Jesus used a banquet or a wedding as a setting for so many of his parables about the kingdom of God. I mentioned before, the very first miracle Jesus ever did was to turn water into wine at a wedding. What was that supposed to mean? It seems kind of random. Well, he was giving a hint about the arrival of the kingdom of God. It started with Jesus' ministry. So that, that great banquet to come is this primary image, the, the culmination of God's rule on earth, which starts with Christ coming to redeem his people. That great feast uh, is symbolic for so many things. It's, it's about salvation. It's about shalom. Shalom is a, a Hebrew word that many of you have heard. It, it means peace and wholeness and, and restoration. So the feast is about that. It's about fellowship and intimacy with God as we sit around his table with him and are fed by him. In the parable of the prodigal son, which I'm sure many of you know, when the prodigal son comes home to his father, he's not just forgiven and welcomed, but then they throw a feast, right? Uh, they kill the fatted calf that they have been fattening up all this time for just the right moment. And that feast represents the joy of salvation, this relationship with God restored. It's reminding us that the angels in heaven are even are rejoicing every time that one sinner repents. So we might ask, well, is the feast now then, like when we repent, when we come to God, or is it later, at the end of time? And the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, as with so many things in Scripture, it's something that is both now and not yet. So in one sense, we are feasting now because we experience as believers uh, the Holy Spirit in our lives and we are fed through his word and through his spirit. We're feasting on Christ, the bread of life. But then there's also more to come that we can't even yet imagine. And so it's kind of like if you can think of a wedding where you're walking around with your drink and your hors d'oeuvres and you're enjoying yourself, but the actual full meal hasn't happened yet. Okay, so we've, we've started, but we're not there yet. The feast we have right now, that, that's our relationship with Christ. Every spiritual blessing that we have been given in Christ. 
But I'm pretty confident that there will actually be a meal meal. We're going to be resurrected in new, perfect, healthy, physical bodies that will be imperishable, like Jesus when he rose from the dead. We will have a body like that. And after his resurrection, he ate with his disciples. Maybe he didn't necessarily need to, but he did, so it's possible. I think there'll be an actual meal because Jesus promised the disciples at the Last Supper, he said, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you in the coming kingdom. So I think he's expecting to actually have a glass of wine with us. This, this feast is going to be both now and not yet. It's both an actual future event and it's a current spiritual reality. I hope that makes sense. Everybody's looking. Not if it makes some sense. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> so given how important this feast idea is in Scripture, I've been thinking more about it this week. I'd never really given a lot of thought to a feast and and what I would want to be there, or what that would be like, and how do I get excited for this feast that God has promised and that we're supposed to be looking forward to? Well, what's it, what's it really going to be like? The description in the Bible isn't very detailed. It doesn't tell us a whole, not, a whole lot about what is really at the feast, although in Isaiah 25 it said there was going to be the best of meats and the finest of wines. And that made me laugh because I am not a wine connoisseur and I'm a vegetarian, so <laughs> hopefully there's other things beside meat and wine. I'm sure there are. But uh, yeah, it made me laugh. Uh, and I thought, have I ever really been to a feast, what I would call like a feast like this? I've been trying to remember. I don't know if I have. I've never been on a cruise and I'm told they have a big spread of food. I don't know. I've never been to a super fancy wedding or like a gala or anything. I've been to buffets, but none that were like super, super amazing or that impressed me. But, but I have one memory from when I was a kid. And some of you will laugh at this if you know what I'm talking about. Does anyone remember the Bonanza Steakhouse? Yeah? Okay. And they, it was a very popular restaurant in the 80s and early 90s in Canada and in the U.S. And they had an all-you-can-eat salad bar. And you would go in and you would order your entree and then you'd go get your all-you-can-eat salad bar. But you could order just the salad bar, like as your whole meal. And that's what I would do as a kid. And that was really exciting to me. I don't know. They, there was... In my family growing up, if we were having salad, it meant there was company coming over. We didn't do fresh vegetables all that often. They were frozen. So, salad bar, and there was jello there as part of the meal. You could put jello and call that dinner. And uh, they had cucumbers cut in little waves, you know, and uh, all these different toppings. That was a feast to me. So, I think of my excitement as a kid that my parents would say, We're going to Bonanza, and I'd go, Oh, that's so fun right? Um, that's the kind of idea that I hope we can get in our minds of, of this feast, that, that we're really excited to go. As an adult now, feast, a feast, a big meal, it's not as appealing, right? I don't want to gain too much weight, and you know, if I was busy and someone invited me to a big dinner and I had other things to do, I might not go. Uh, I think I'm too spoiled, actually. If you think back in Jesus' day, what they had to eat on a regular basis was pretty basic, right? Their food choice was limited to whatever they could grow or raise locally, bread, fish, meat, milk, 
a few vegetables, a few fruits. Same, 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 every day, right? And now we have so many choices in the grocery store, I can't even pick a box of cereal or yogurt, right? There's so many types and flavors. We have food from all over the world right there at our fingertips. And so the idea, I think, of a feast is less exciting for us because we could basically have a feast whenever we want one. So maybe, maybe it's a little bit the same in our spiritual lives. Maybe we are so comfortable and so well-fed with our church and our Christian friends and our volunteering and our, our comforting devotional books that we aren't actually hungry for God himself anymore. I wonder. Are we distracted and focused on other things, even on good things like ministry? Are we focused on these things and too busy doing things for God or things for others that we don't actually spend time and we don't actually crave time with God, talking to God, hearing from God, just being alone in his presence? Do we want that? Or are we busy with everything else? Well, Jesus told a parable about this that we're going to read now. This one will be on screen, and you can look it up as well. Luke 14, the parable of the great banquet. Exactly what we've been talking about here. Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 15. And the context of this parable is that Jesus was invited to a meal at a Pharisee's house, and he was teaching over that meal about humility and generosity. He was encouraging people to invite over people that couldn't pay them back, not to do their um, hospitality for show, but to actually bless people. And so, verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. What was it that kept people away from this great banquet? It was not bad things. It was good things. It was some things that are the same as what keep us away from intimacy with God today. Possessions, work, and family. First guy had a field. He wants to go look at his field, see what he's bought, enjoy his new purchase, right? His this possession. How many times do we think we don't have time 
to be with God because we're dealing with all of our stuff. We've got to clean things. We've got to renovate things. We've got to decorate things. We've got to garden. We've got to shop. We've got to go get new clothes or a new car or new furniture. We've got to organize our stuff, sell our stuff, store our stuff, enjoy our stuff. Right? It takes over. And so possessions are one of the main things that can keep us from that great banquet. The second thing was work. This guy had bought some oxen, and the field needs plowing now. It's, you know, you've got to get the seed in the ground. Time is money. I've got a job to do. I want to do it well. I'm busy. I'm focused. I'm doing my work. No time for God's feast. The third one, the fellow had gotten married. He needs, we need to spend time with family, don't we? Family's important. We, we don't want to neglect our spouse or our children or our parents. And so this might be the biggest challenge because we know how important relationships are to God. They do take a lot of time and a lot of attention. But remember, loving others is the second greatest commandment. It's not the first, right? The first one is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this person refused God's banquet by essentially saying to God, I've got someone more interesting to spend time with than you. Ow. So all of these things, our work, our family, our possessions, they're good things, they're necessary things for life, but they're not as good or as necessary to our daily lives as receiving nourishment from God. Without God, those things are going to be empty. These things, they might feel so urgent, but they're not necessarily important. There's a difference. Have you ever heard the phrase, the tyranny of the urgent? It means that if we don't prioritize our lives very carefully, our life can get very full of urgent things that are ultimately meaningless, or at least less meaningful than the time that we need with God. They keep us away from Him and from those spiritual blessings and life that we need. They do offer some satisfaction. Of course, we find pleasure and satisfaction in work and possessions and family, but if we are content with that, we're missing out. They don't give the same kind of satisfaction that Christ gives. We get too content with our life just the way that it is, and we, we maybe don't know what we're missing. We don't realize that there's so much more. Many of you might know this quote from C.S. Lewis. He wrote this in uh, one of his books, The Weight of Glory. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our desire for God, compared to our desire for other things, is too weak. How are we going to strengthen that desire? How are we going to get hungry for his feast? Now, you might challenge me there and say, well, what's wrong with being content? Aren't we told to be content? Contentment is a good thing, right? Again, it's, it's yes and no. It's both and. Contentment, if it's a lack of greed, is a very good thing. We want that kind of contentment. We don't want to be greedy. 
But sometimes contentment is a front for something not so good. We might say we're content when actually we're just lazy. We don't want to put in the effort that it would take to achieve something better, so we're just content with this. Or sometimes we're content because we're afraid of change. Or maybe we're, we're content because we don't really know that there's anything better. So we think this is all there is, so this is all, I'll just have to be content with this. And we don't recognize that there's more. And that's not good. And so in our relationship with God, we can never be content. It's not wrong to be greedy for more of God. Okay? We can't let our relationship with God get stale and say, well, that's, that's good enough then. Jesus said to one of the churches in the first century that he had one thing against them. They had lost their first love, which was supposed to be him, in case that wasn't clear. So what is it like with a new love, a first love? You're enamored with that person. You want to get to know everything about them. You want to spend time with them and understand them and hear from them. You want to listen to them. Sometimes we call that the honeymoon period, right? When you've first got this new love. But then over time, we get comfortable, we get settled, we know them pretty well, well enough. We don't have that same passionate interest anymore. And in our relationship with God, there's never an excuse for losing interest because he is infinite. He's not just a human being like us. We will never, ever be able to stop learning new things about God. We can get to know him forever. And he, was, he will constantly surprise and delight us by who he is and what he does. But we have to make that effort. We have to want to know him. We have to be hungry for that. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Filled with righteousness, right? That's the end of the sentence. But the thing is, we can't be righteous on our own. There's nobody who's righteous. Only God is. And so I think what the promise here actually is, is that we will, to be filled with righteousness is actually that we will be filled with the Holy Spirit, with God himself, who is righteous. Um, in Ephesians 3, Paul prays this prayer for us, for the church. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is a familiar prayer, familiar words, but it's incredible what Paul is trying to communicate here. I don't have the words, and neither did he, to try and explain all that this means. I don't understand it myself. To have Christ dwelling in us by the Holy Spirit, and to be rooted in love, and filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God dwelling in us. That's incredible, right? 
to have God in us, as close as our next breath, directing us, guiding our every word, every action, this beautiful union of humanity and divinity. So it's not just that God gives us his joy or gives us his peace or gives us his strength. God gives us himself. He is the feast, the nourishment that we need for our souls. Jesus called himself the bread of life. It's the staple food that sustains us in everything. But so often we don't crave him because we've gotten too content just living on the surface of things. All those urgent things that have to be done and all those distractions. We've got to find a way to crave more of God because he is worth it. Psalm 36 says this, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God! People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. So we, we need to find ways to value the intimacy God is offering us more than we value anything else in this world. Or we might refuse the feast in our ignorance, like the people in Jesus' parable. And then we might not get to participate in it at all. The end of his parable is a sober warning. It says, not one of those invited will get a taste of my banquet. And Jesus gives the same warning even more strongly. In Matthew chapter 8, there was a soldier, a Roman centurion, who sent word to Jesus that his servant was sick and, and asked Jesus to heal him. But he said, you don't need to come. You don't have to come to my house. Just say the word from where you are, and I know he'll be healed. And then Jesus said this. He was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the same idea as the parable of the great banquet, that there are people who are invited, who are supposed to be God's people, that are refusing the feast. And so God has opened the doors. Everybody come, anybody come, because the people who should appreciate it don't. That's a strong warning for us as the church. Are we aware of what God is offering? Do we value that intimacy, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us with all the fullness of God? It's amazing. I don't want to miss out on that feast. I want to be one of the first ones to show up for this feast that I've been invited to, and I want all of you there with me. So this question for us to ponder as we conclude on this sermon and go into the coming week, the question I want you to remember is, are you hungry? Do you want that feast that God's offering? And if not, why not? Or is there something distracting you? Something you want more? Possessions, work, family, something else? So let's pray together now and let's ask God to reveal what it is that's keeping us from craving more of him 
and to show us how we can experience this feast of his presence more fully in our daily lives. Pray with me, please. Lord, your grace is so abundant. Forgiveness in itself, just your mercy would be enough. But you go above and beyond mercy to give us such amazing grace, just to shower upon us blessing after blessing after blessing, to give yourself to us that we can know you, that we can experience your power, your love, working in us and through us. And so often, Lord, we admit that we don't recognize that, we don't access that, we don't ask you for that. We think this is maybe all that there is, what we've experienced so far. So, Lord, show us that there's more. Show us what is distracting us from this great feast that you have prepared. Give us a hunger for your word, a hunger for prayer, a hunger for intimacy with you, to know you, to see your face and hear your voice, to understand you, to love you and be loved by you. Jesus, help us to want that more than anything else. And in this coming series, as we look at all these different examples of food in the Bible and what you wanted to teach us, may we hunger for you more and more. Let us not be satisfied with our experience so far, but may we know that there's always more of you to discover. Would you give us energy and enthusiasm to continue seeking you and following hard after you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.